Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Countercurrents radio stream for the 20th of January, 2024. And this is my first live stream of this year, so I might be a bit rusty. Forgive me. Um, now, I'm going to go to the... I'm not exactly sure what the format is. I think Greg just wants me to uh, do my usual sort of thing, uh, an AMA, for the next hour, hour and a half. We'll see how long it, how long it goes. Um, so I will go to Odyssey and have a look at the... Uh, the live chat there. There is also D Live. Uh, right, let's see. Ah, here we go. That stream. Woes, you big ride. Uh, not sure what that means, Horse Consoler, but thank you and hello. Um, so let's see. Uh, it's still got this. Uh, <laughs> I think he's still got the the title from the previous stream which is with the cultured thug uh that's that's too bad you'll you'll just have to try to spot the difference between me and uh the cultured th oh no that was about biden of course it was about the new the biden book well yes that's that's one thing uh just try to ignore that misleading title and uh and remember that it's millennial woes so this is um this is my first stream since millennial 2023 millennial nine and that was a big thing and i i think it went well i think it went actually i think it was the best millennial so far uh and i don't say that lightly but uh, the atmosphere the buzz throughout the whole thing was just great so i've wanted i haven't yet put up a sort of what's the word like a, a postscript message on the the telegram channel about 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 millennial 2023 but i will do that uh probably well uh, within the next few days um so there are various things that i would say there just thank all the the guests who appeared thank the moderators who took care of the live chats uh and also the people who the moderators who looked after my telegram group while that was going on and uh and of course all the people who donated so thank you to everyone uh, and also the people in the live chat, because of course they are instrumental in in creating the atmosphere. Uh, Millennial this time was broadcast on, well, streamed on multiple platforms. There was Odyssey, DLive, Twitter, Telegram, and latterly Rumble as well. So that was it was quite in various ways. I mean, I'm not going to, I won't, I'll draw myself back from going into the autistic details of it of it all but suffice it to say that it was a a big undertaking uh in various ways but as i say i think the my conclusion and i think most people's conclusion is that it went very well so i'm i'm delighted i'm delighted about that um uh, and there's Padfa who uh, in the live chat who was very helpful to me throughout Millennial. So thank you for that, Padfa. Uh, it was quite, it was quite a thing, quite a ride indeed. Um, and so after that, I've just been uh, was taking a break for, uh, so far this this month until this stream. I haven't. This is the first sort of thing I've done. Uh, but but obviously, I've you know been. I've been fairly busy, nonetheless. I've been 
uh, putting together a piece of software to help me organize all of my notes for my various Substack projects, kind of like a uh, like a file of facts kind of thing uh, on the desktop, uh, because otherwise it's just a, it's just chaotic. Um, there's just so much to bear in mind to hold in your head. So that was starting to stress me because I knew that I had to, after millennial, I've got to get back into that work now. And uh, the, the, <clears throat> the thought of it, the enormity of all these different Substack essays, some of them huge projects, like 10, 15 essays, 20 essays, one of them. Uh, the thought of it, rather, I, I started getting anxious and overwhelmed. And then I thought, well, there must be some way to marshal this so that I'm less intimidated by it. And so that was when I started putting together this, started writing this software. So that's basically what I've been doing for the last eight days, eight or nine days. Um, and prior to that, I was just sort of dazed uh, <laughs> in a, in a, a funk for a, a few days, uh, but nothing, you know, nothing dreadful. Uh, millennial is a difficult thing to do, but it's not, and it is a bit of a ride, you know, it's a, a rush and all that, but it's not, I mean, it doesn't turn you inside out. It, I wouldn't want to overstate it. It just, um, it just drains you. Uh, <laughs> by, by the end of it, I was, well, by the, by Christmas day, uh, there was, you know, it was definitely time for it to switch into a more leisurely gear. So yeah, next next time I might bear that in mind and only have it for twelve nights instead of the the fourteen fifteen that were done this year. So we'll see, we'll see. But of course, the next time is going to be the tenth, and uh, so it's obviously there is a. A temptation to make it bigger than ever for the tenth, but I think that's crazy. And you know, it was always in my head that for some reason, Millennial Twenty Eighteen was exhausting, but I'd forgotten why it was. And then I looked at the schedule for that year, and I realised that I'd I'd been doing five, at least it was five, sometimes six streams a night, and that was why it was that was why I was fucked after that. So it makes sense now. <laughs> I understand. And obviously, so for the 10th, there is a certain temptation to make it bigger than ever. But I don't know. Um, I don't think people really want that. I think because each stream then can only be an hour long at the most. And I don't think people really want that. I think the the, the format that has been arrived at seems to be one that, you know, people like, generally speaking. Obviously, there are people who would like it to be more this or that, but most people, I think, are happy with it as it is. Um, and so some people do ask me to do debates on it, for example, but so it'd be more combative and less comfy, less perhaps less complacent, you could say. Um, but the thing is, that's not... Uh, yeah, I, I don't think that's what... I don't think it would... Uh, go well with what millennial has become which is very much a sort of cozy end of year get together so yeah you can never please everyone of course there, there are always and there are always things that go wrong it's uh yeah it's variable 
Hold on a second. I have misplaced my my vape, so I'm just going to go and get it. I think I know where it is. <laughs> I won't be able to continue without it, so hold on. You should be ultra selective with the guests from Millennial 10. Do one or two streams a night. Oh, I don't know about that. Uh, that wouldn't be... I don't know. That, that that wouldn't create the sort of atmosphere that that people expect, or, and that I expect from it. You know, two streams a night isn't that. It it it's not enough to generate the kind of atmosphere that you want. But um, yeah. And then another thing that someone suggested was to do it just one stream a night and do it over the course of December. But nah. Now, again, you, you want this compression of activity over a, 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 a definite period of time uh, where it's limited so that people know there's a structure to it, there's a shape to it, and a certain momentum to it. So um, hold on a second. Okay. Apparently the Twitter link that I posted isn't working. Let's see. I'll uh, I'll just sort this out now. Okay, okay, yeah. All right. Okay. Sorry, everyone. Wrong link. Streaming here. There we go. All right. So, um, yeah, just for one year. Yeah, maybe, maybe. I don't know. I, the, other, the other thing is you, I want to play it safe for the for the 10th because it's the 10th. <laughs> so I don't want to do anything too, uh, you know, uh, unusual. Um, I had 10 streams a night. <laughs> Fuck's sake. Uh, no, no. I, you know, after all this agonizing, what I'll probably end up doing is just doing it completely normal, the, the same format as the last few years. But what I do want is to have more AMAs throughout it because I really enjoy the AMAs and like late night and the, you know four in the morning. I think it's nice after all the the hubbub. It's nice to have a sort of intimate thing at the end of it where it's just me and 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 the viewers and there's no guest, there's no interview to be done. It's just relaxed chit chat. Um, I really enjoyed that uh, this year. Uh, we did. I mean, I've always I've been doing the uh, various ones since 2018, but this year I added the solstice one and the midway one, and they were really nice. I might I look to add more uh, in future years. Ah, so yeah, that, that's millennial, and I, I won't go on about it any more than that. Uh, but it is, it's funny, you know, how quickly things change as well, because one of the things on that I was saying on Millennial, and it came up in quite a few streams, was that I thought that the we'd, we'd reached peak censorship. And so something like Substack, for example, just didn't, that platform just doesn't seem interested in censorship. It, do, it doesn't seem to want to do that, it seems to have a completely different attitude to it. And it seems to be confident about being able to sustain that attitude. So in other words, it's not scared of whatever, being debanked or whatever. Um, so, and, and so that's, that's encouraging because it implies, and this is what I said, that censorship has become a sort of dirty word. 
Uh, it's become something passé. It's something that the public in general just aren't very fond of, uh, or at least that the, the Silicon Valley companies aren't that fond of it anymore. You know, it's just it was a possibility, and in the case of Substack, I think it was, I think it was true. And obviously, in the case of Elon Elon Musk's Twitter, I think it's generally largely true, in spite of a few caveats. The thing is, though, since I said all of that, <laughs> this is all since like in the last twenty days, um, Substack has shut down a bunch of accounts under pressure from The Atlantic magazine and some, uh, I don't want to be too insulting, but some guy uh, who's who's on Substack, I've forgotten the, the name, Platformer, Platformer, that's the name of the Substack, and it's some guy and I think his wife, I'm not sure. And anyway, they, so the, the Atlantic published an article written by someone, I can't remember his name now, but his surname was Katz. So as you would expect of the Atlantic. And um, so he wrote an article saying that Substack has a Nazi problem. And then Platformer on Substack picked up on that and piled on pressure, saying that they were going to leave Substack. They were going to uproot and recreate Platformer on some other website if Substack didn't deal with the Nazi problem. Um, I wonder what was going on there. If it was a backhander, Platformer had been given some money to pile on pressure here to amplify the message, or they just wanted to be, they, they thought it was going to be a big story, so they wanted to get out ahead of it and be seen and be seen to be leading it. Who knows? Or they are just a insufferable fucking, you know, progressives, what we used to call SJWs, who enjoy getting their opponents deplatformed and people that they regard as their opponents. And the thing is, they use the term Nazis. But having got like proper bona fide Nazis deplatformed, they would of course progress to everyone else that they disagree with. And this is this has been obviously the situation on, on all the other platforms, Twitter, YouTube, Facebook, even Instagram, for God's sake, where by by 2021, 22, it was absurd. I mean, the levels were just ludicrous. People being banned for saying the wrong thing about the origins of the of COVID. People being banned for saying that the presidential election was rigged. People being banned for saying that the vaccine didn't work. Losing their entire, when I say banned, I mean losing years of work, years and years of work. All of that gone down the drain because you said the wrong thing once. Uh, that's crazy. And that's what I've been saying for years, that this simply should not be allowed. There should be some sort of tribunal that, you know, beyond a certain level, once you've got, say, 10,000, 20,000, maybe more, maybe 50,000 subscribers on, on a platform, at that point, I think there should be an understanding that the platform cannot just destroy all your work. It can't. It's there's got to be some kind of tribunal uh, where you're allowed to defend yourself and make your case. But yeah, there we go. Wishful thinking. Point is, this was the atmosphere. As we all know, I don't need to rehearse it now. <clears throat> but this was the atmosphere on on all social media except for Telegram. Then Substack emerged, 
Then t- Musk took over Twitter. And um, I'm talking about mainstream social media things here. Obviously not BitChute's, Odyssey, uh, whatever. So anyway, so the so Substack did ban, I think it was about 20 accounts. Um, I can't remember now. And that's that. That's happened now. Maybe they're hoping, because I think they actually do value freedom of speech. I think they really don't want to be the censorious ones. So maybe they're now hoping, okay, we've placated those people who wanted us to ban the those those accounts. So we've done it. So now hopefully they'll leave us alone. I don't think so. I don't think they will. Um of course, there's always the danger that if they hadn't done it, then the campaign would have been stepped up until they did fucking do it. And that could have gone all the way to the payment processor, as it has in the past, for, like for Patreon, for example. They, their arm was, was twisted by MasterCard, I think it was, who said that they simply would not, <laughs> if they didn't ban loads of content creators from Patreon, then uh, Patreon wouldn't be able to function anymore. It would be crippled financially and a similar thing could be done to substack and that really worries me because well for obvious reasons numerous reasons that we see morgoth did an essay he put out an essay today and he used a phrase in it that i think hold on a second i'll try to i'll try to find it for you yeah he used a phrase in it that I think is very interesting. Um, the antibodies of the regime seem to sense in Trump the threat that comes with reforming the system, even if the West in general would benefit from an easing of ideological dogma, a decrease in censorship, and a throwing open of the discursive parameters that currently throttle the intellectual, economic, and cultural life of the civilization. So it's that last bit. That, that hit me, a throwing open of the discursive parameters that currently throttle the intellectual, economic, and cultural life of the civilization. So it has been remar- remarked upon a lot recently that culture seems to have frozen in, in many ways. It's, there haven't been any new genres and any aesthetics in the last 20 years. It's been very top-down cultural. There has been cultural change, but it's been very much top-down, orchestrated, the rainbow, all of that stuff. Wokery. It's been constructed, not being grassroots or organic or spontaneous or emergent. It's been doctrinaire and coming from the top and enforced on pain of deplatforming, debanking, demonizing, all the rest of it. So that's the cultural change that we've had. And what Morgoth said there interested me, because he, he said that it's also throttling the intellectual life of the civilization. I agree, because I've I said this myself, that the erasure of so much material from YouTube, for example, and the, and the banning of so much material from the academic realm, from, well, from academia, there are so many things that you just cannot say in academia that you cannot even approach in academia, that you cannot even hint at in academia. It's an extraordinarily policed environment now. So yeah, throttled. And and what that means, of course, is that we can't 
arrive at conclusions. We can't arrive at sound conclusions. Our, our academics cannot diagnose the world, cannot even talk about the world honestly at this point, because to do so would violate so many premises, so many axioms that, that they're supposed to take for granted and, and really believe in. And, and a lot of them will really believe in those axioms and then find themselves in a weird position where something, an observation they've made, contradicts their own axioms. And they won't know what to do. It'll be like a deer in the headlights. And uh, that's not really... We don't want our intellectuals, our academics, to be that creature, but to be this frightened, pathetic creature that needs the doctrine. We need them to be able to handle ideas properly. But in the current environment, we cannot create academics like that. And if any academics do emerge who are like that by nature, we can't allow them to thrive. We can't even allow them to remain employed. Uh, obviously not you and me, I'm speaking figuratively. So the point is that such people would get a limit, they'd get excluded from the game board, as it were. So it throttles the intellectual life, throttles the cultural life, as we said, throttles the economic life. That's a more interesting question. I don't know whether Morgoth would swear by that. I don't know if it's true. I'm not sure. Uh, it's possible that our our economies could be in better state uh, shape without <laughs> without the rainbow. I'm not sure. I don't. I don't know. Uh, I I also don't really care one way or the other because my priority is not the economy, as I'm sure it isn't for most people. But, but that's it's a, it's an interesting question. It's an interesting comment that he made there about about the economy. But the real thing is the general point that we live in a stultified condition now that's completely artificial it's it's being main, it's being sustained uh with great effort a huge amount of effort is necessary in order to keep this up in order to keep people in curious to keep people complacent to keep people smug to keep people ignorant it uh, and I'm not going to say that everyone would naturally be a truth seeker, because <laughs> I don't believe that's true. But I think that far more would be than is currently the case, if it were not for these artificial pressures. So, so that's the environment that we're in, and um, and that's I saw, you know, in, up until January the first or whenever this started with Substack. I thought that we were maybe heading towards the end of it, that there was now a new era dawning where censorship just wasn't... I mean, it's failed so many times. It's it's done its work, but it's also failed because our ideas keep spreading anyway. Even with all... I mean, this is not to do with Elon Musk's Twitter. It was happening even before then. It happened all throughout COVID, all throughout... But before that, with you know Antifa attacking people and all that, our ideas were always spreading. January the 6th, uh, Trump, the president, the, the rigged election, and so on. All through Trump's presidency, our ideas were always spreading, even despite the massive censorship. So the censorship has worked in a sense. It's made our lives a lot harder. Um, 
but it hasn't worked in the sense that I think they hoped it would work, which is that it will keep certain ideas at bay and uh, it will keep the, the, the public compli- uh, you know, docile. Now, the public have been kept docile, but even there, I think there are rumblings. Uh, the general public, I mean, the normies, even they are not as... Uh, dumb and listless as they were 10 years ago or five years ago. So, because, and it's as you would expect as well, because the general situation, the quality of life is getting worse. You cannot continue to have the same percentage of people believing that diversity is our strength in the face of the obvious effects of diversity. People are just going to start waking up one by one and it is happening. Now, again, I'm not saying that therefore... I'm not saying anything except what I've just said. All right? I'm not saying that, therefore, it's all going to change. But I am saying that censorship, I, I don't think, has been as effective as they were hoping. Um, so that's... So, therefore, I thought maybe they're giving up on it. But then you see this thing with Substack and the Atlantic, and you realise, well, actually, no, they're, they're perfectly willing to go for a round two. So the dreadful wave that happened between, let's say, 2017 to 2021, that's largely relaxed. You don't hear about people, like in the last year, you haven't heard about any big, certainly not nationalist YouTubers being banned from YouTube. It hasn't, I, I, can't, I can't remember the last one who got banned. Um, the last, I think I got banned in 2021, along with Way of the World. And we were, and then a couple of people after us, and that was it. Those were the last who got banned. Um, and since then, that platform's largely been... See, that's another thing, that there's always this, the shadow banning that they can do instead of actually... So they can let you stay, but throttle you. <laughs> so that's, that's another tool that they've got. But nonetheless, the point is, it seemed to me that YouTube was that that first ban wave, that first wave of when they cut down so many accounts and channels and all the rest of it seemed to be over. I think it sort of ended with the peak of COVID and the vaccine stuff. And um, yeah, maybe the US election stuff, BLM, George Floyd, all of that fucking nonsense in 2020. I think it peaked then. And then since then, it seems to have been relaxed. But I think what I, th- I think that it, it's it would be wrong to get complacent and think, well, that's that. Then they've they've given up on censorship because it hasn't worked out. No, they do know that deplatforming does work. It doesn't stop the ideas completely, but it does slow them down and it does make the lives of those spreading those ideas much harder. Um, so it does work in that sense. So yeah, I think they they probably are tooling up for another wave of that. Um, so it's depressing. It's fucking annoying. Uh, but anyway, with Substack, we'll just have to wait and see. Uh, I really, I don't know what's going to happen there. Um, let's see. So there are a few other things that I want to touch on that are related to this, um, the quality of the elites and so on. Um, but I'll have a look at the, the comments. No, I've missed quite a few because I had a different 
window open. Sorry. See, that's another thing that I've got to do now, like this year, is is close all of my bloody browser tabs because I've got a whole like it's completely stuffed full of them, and I think I've got maybe fifty or no, it must be more than that, like eighty tabs open. So I want to I want to go through all of those and get them out of the way so that it's a sort of blank canvas for the, for uh, starting this year. Um, uh, anyway, that's another thing I've got to do. It's on the to-do list. Um, yeah, it was probably just a matter of time before the mainstream came for Substack. Yeah, I uh, exactly. And I, I did wonder for a time, when are they going to start? When's it going to happen? But And then I thought, well, okay, maybe it's just not going to happen. And then, of course, it did happen. Uh, um, so, all right. I work in a university. MW is not exaggerating. Oh, look, yeah. I I, I don't know many young people, the you twenty know, somethings, um, teenagers or whatever, people who are at university. But I, I mean, you see the stuff that they. they you see what they they watch on YouTube. You see what they say on Twitter, and it's obvious that they're fucked. They've got just. I mean, it's much. It's it, it's yeah. <laughs> it's 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 as bad as you would predict. Um, and of course, the young always think they know so much. They always are so smug and complacent. Uh, partly because they're encouraged to be. I mean. The, the tricks that have been pulled are really quite something. Um, like making them think that they are the resistance. Uh, making them think that they are the cleverest. Um, I think various psychological techniques have been used here uh, in order to in order to in order to work this. <clears throat> the ivory tower is now an ivory dildo. Yes, yes. I mean, you say it, obviously it's a joke, I know, but it's just basically true now. Uh, are academics impressive anymore? I'm, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, I, you, I, I don't want to name names, but there are public academics who, you know that this, the, you know that the state of things is bad if this person is held up as an academic, if this person is held up as a, an exemplary mind, you know that things must be bad. Uh, as I say, I'm not going to name names, but I just mean you know public intellectual, public academics. The same goes for journalists as well. Uh, I think, and I, you could enumerate all the different ways in which our society has declined, in which there is visible, tangible decline across all the sectors, down the generations. Uh, it's it's just very obvious. Um, I love how our ideas keep accidentally getting proved, like via impartial AI and diversity pets acting up, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, well, the AI. See, that's something that one of my first Substack essays was about. This uh, this matter that AI you can make it impartial and logical and objective and all that, but then it it says things that shock you. So then, you know, you as a Silicon Valley tit, 
so then you've got to you've got to retard the AI. You've got to like I don't know insert bolts into its brain to fuck up the functioning, so that it can no longer come up with these conclusions that trouble you. I mean, it's sick. It's like a teacher deliberately distorting the thinking of his pupils so as to keep them down so that they're they're they never say things that that trouble him that's it's sick it's a, it's a horrible mental image but that is basically what all of these engineers programmers are doing to ai i mean it's like if dr frankenstein had the creature and it all worked out well the creature is completely sane and reasonable and rational. And then he thought, okay, now I've got to make you a fucking retard. That's basically what they're doing. To their own creation. And I find that perverse. <laughs> um, all right. Around about 10 days ago, a Chinese friend who's living in Vancouver asked me for advice about where to live, where the system is good. She's from Wuhan and can't choose a direction. She's worried greatly about the Cold War between China and America. She feels that China will start a war. Oh, that's a reply to someone else. So sorry. Okay. Um, well, war, there's a whole lot of stuff there with uh, America and Iran. Um, I do feel, I mean, and then Russia as well, of course. I, I do feel like we are heading just inexorably towards war. Um there are, there are now seem to be so many different centers that that need conflict not just in america i mean centers around the world the, the power centers that that need some kind of clarification which can only come through war with each other uh so yeah it seems to be but you know as for putting a time frame on it that would be a, a fool's errand i think but yeah, it's, I'm not talking about the distant future. It seems to be, um, you know, pretty, pretty imminent, pretty, pretty close. The next five years. <laughs> Tom, that, that's amazing. A Jewish woman cornered me in my workplace at university and accused me of white privilege and fragility. It was apropos of nothing. I was trying to help her with something unrelated. <laughs> Fuck. See, that's a thing I've seen several times recently in, like, in the last six months where someone brings up white, like, and always a woman, brings up white privilege. Remember, I don't, I don't know if anyone saw this clip from the Irish, it was some Irish committee, like government committee hearing. And there was, I think it was about, oh, it was about suicide, um, assisted suicide or whether suicide should be legal that kind of thing and this woman it was, a, so it was like an older guy this old religious guy uh, was there as a sort of witness to give his to give the perspective of the church on this matter i guess and he was being interrogated by this fucking awful modern woman uh possibly a lesbian definitely a leftist uh, definitely progressive and, and nihilistic and not bright, clearly not bright. But she knew that she could pull out the white thing, 
even though she herself was white, she could. It mattered. It was more damaging if she brought it up with him because he's also a ma- a man. So she said he. So he was saying that basically, I uh, I don't think you should be allowed to elect to commit suicide. And she said to him, "What what is it to you? What is it to uh, as a white male? What is it to you if I choose to commit suicide?" And I. The race thing. Why did she say that? Why did she bring in that he's a white male? He is, but why is that relevant? And there was another example of it, which I can't remember now. It's not coming to me, but there was a similar thing where someone brought race into it. A woman brought race into something that was it wasn't relevant, but she did it in order to vilify the person she was talking to, in order to shut him up. Um, you know. Uh, it's psychological bullying. Yes, it is. I think it's also a sort of social one-upmanship. They know that they can pull this card out and basically you've got to then just back down. You've got to admit defeat. Yeah, you're right. You've, you've, you're, you're quite right. I'm white. I'd forgotten. Now that you've pointed out, I'm going to shut up. When what they should be told is, well, yeah, <laughs> yeah that, that's the trouble, isn't it? We're, we're, we're kind of past the point where clever arguments matter or even clever put downs. Um, because she knows that when she says this, it's not just some stupid woman on her own with a, with a, a one liner. She knows that she's got the backing of the entire establishment and the white male doesn't, he's on his own. So he has to handle this, uh, vilification on his own as an individual which is actually interesting because it's completely contrary to the implication, which is that he, as a white male, he has institutional power. <sighs> what can you say? So, uh, yeah. And that's the other thing, as if being white automatically negates any original thought. Well, yeah, indeed. You know, you, you just hope that people will wake up. <laughs> They'll realize, holy shit, the way we live, the all the inventions around us, the rights that we take for granted, the culture that we take for granted, all of it, it comes from white people. I mean, yes, there's the occasional invention by someone else, but broadly speaking, virtually everything is us. And you can only hope that they realize this before everything is just you know, uh, a war zone, a post-apocalyptic landscape. Anyway, let me see. Um, right. Oh, yeah, I should have said it. The, 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 there are the super chats. You can send them to countercurrents. I think it's uh, just entropy with them. Uh, let's see. Um Oh, and there is also the Odyssey as well. Let me see that. I forgot about that. God, how does it work? It's funny how you forget just enough <laughs> in 20 days. Um, right, okay, there aren't any there. Okay, uh, so T-Dub said, given the total demoralization of the British public after 10 years of Tory rule, could matters go beyond party politics? How would direct action even be achieved with an unarmed population? Um, you'd be talking about protests. Uh, I mean, that's 
anything other than that would obviously be illegal and I couldn't advocate that uh, or discuss it. Um, but yeah, I, I take the point that with an unarmed population, yeah, the the police... I mean, th this is the big joke about lefties, that they'll say that they're against guns. They want gun control, but they want the police to have guns, but they also want to defund the police. So it's a, a whole big contradiction there. We might be caricaturing them, you know, <laughs> it would depend on the same lefty saying all of these things <laughs> in order for it to be uh, contradictory, but whatever. Um, the point is that, yeah, w without without guns, the police can just do what they like. The thing is, though, that the American public also, they do have guns, and yet, and this is a point that Mark Weber made on the Guide to Culture uh, stream a few days ago, that the establishment, the regime, the government, the state, uh, can control you, even if you do have, you know, an arsenal of weaponry in your house and loads of ammunition, whatever, a bulletproof vest and all that, they can still just fuck you up. Uh, and I, But I take the point that it would be harder for them to do that if the population were armed. It's, tr it's obviously true. Um, but yeah, short of that, I... I I, I don't know, this is a very dodgy topic to talk about in Britain, because people will just, it can be easily misconstrued that you're advocating violence of some kind, so I don't want to I don't want to go into that. Um, as for protests, you would hope that they would work, that they would have some sort of effect, but I don't actually think that they do. Uh, they it's, the protests are really about bolstering, creating an illusion of consensus for what the powerful already want to do. That's what it actually is. A protest against the powerful, I mean, this is the whole lie about speaking truth to power. The left, in the last 50 years, the only time you, that you could say that they actually did speak truth to power was Occupy in 2010. Interestingly, maybe there are other examples, but that's the only one that springs to mind now because everything else I think was desired by the establishment. But I think that Occupy kind of was uh, shot across the bows for them. I think it, it, it scared them. And I think that's why they then took a very, uh, uh, well, a, a very different tack of... Uh, occupying the the entire apparatus of leftist protest uh, in all these different fields. I mean, obviously, you could say they were doing it already. In various ways, they were. But you've got to admit that all of that really stepped up throughout the course of the 2010s. I mean, you'd have to be a, a fool to deny that. It obviously did happen. And I think it happened, you know, if you're going to look for a historical event that would have prompted that, there just happened to be one right at the start of that decade in the shape of Occupy. So I think that's what happened there. So in that sense, you could say that protest works, um, it, or at least it troubles the establishment. I think it does. It, it, it depends on the numbers, and it depends. If they can demonize you, then that's it. It's a done deal. They're, you're no threat to them. They're not going to be worried about you. They'll just demonize you. And this is why behavior, conduct, and optics, I absolutely think that optics matter. 
um, that that whole optics war that happened, I think, was just retarded. I can't believe that anyone. I don't know. I'd have to get back into it in order to hear the arguments again, but it just seems fucking stupid to say that effectively it doesn't matter how you come across. All that matters is uh, is your ideas. That seems really spargy to me. So anyway, um, all right. Yeah, so then, then the other thing, of course, is a counter-elite forming. In terms of, to get back to that, the, the question, uh, could matters go beyond party politics? I do think that party politics is, especially in Britain with the first-past-the-post system, the voting system, I think that party politics is a complete... Uh, it's a retarding factor. It's something that makes sure change cannot possibly happen. Uh, First-past-the-post is... Party politics is bad enough already. I don't like it. But first-past-the-post makes party politics much, much worse. Um, so that's the situation in Britain. <laughs> um, I think that the Labour Party... It's interesting... You've with, with Corbyn because with Jeremy Corbyn because you've got this conflict between the Zionist left or well the Zionist right, <laughs> but well yeah 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 the, the the Zionist left as well if you want to call them that if you think of Tony Blair Peter Mandelson people who are on the side of Israel and yet they are leftists so they're not it's not the the sort of but this is where you get to this fact that it, it, it doesn't really matter about left and right. Left and right is something for the for us. It's something for the general public. But it doesn't actually have that much import at, at, the, at a higher level in society. They just don't care. It's just bread and circus. It's just, it's just a distraction. It's the Pepsi versus Coca-Cola thing. Um, so with Corbyn, I think that there was a sense that the Labour Party was going to become, if not anti-Zionist, then no longer as pro-Zionist as it had been, no longer a reliable partner for those interests. And so he was ousted and replaced with Keir Starmer, who is completely in hoc to those interests. Completely. Uh, he couldn't be more. I mean, he's married to a Jewish woman, um, he, he's constantly going on about Israel. He's constantly just numerous things. He's very clearly pro-Israel, pro-Zionist, pro-Jew, philo-Semite, etc. So they couldn't have replaced Corbyn with a more uh, diametrically different guy than they have. Um, not that I think Jeremy Corbyn is some sort of you know rabid anti-Semite. I don't think he is at all. I think he's just well, as he seems, he's just someone who always sides with the, the little man uh, in any conflict. So that's going to be the Palestinians, actually, regardless of uh, the rights and wrongs of it. I think that's just to do with Jeremy Corbyn's mentality. It's just who he is. Um, but then there are other reasons, as someone's just mentioned. And there were other reasons to get rid of Jeremy Corbyn. He was... Uh, set to renationalize the all the utilities uh, in Britain. Now, privatization is 
that's a bloody complicated topic. I was just at the very end of Millennial. I started doing research about uh, <laughs> the post office, oddly enough. And it was before this, con it wasn't related. It was coincidental that a few days later, this controversy with the post office broke out in, in Britain. But anyway, I was doing research about it. And um, to do with the documentary Nightmare from 1936. And so part of that was also researching the British railway system. Because it's, it's Nightmare, it's about a train. So it's about the, these two different things, the, the postal system in Britain and the railway system in Britain. And holy shit, you know, the amount that there is of, of information that you could spend a lifetime learning about these, either one of these two things uh, and writing about it and cogitating on the pluses and minuses of privatization versus nationalization. Uh, it's a huge thing. Um, it's it's weird because, yeah, I don't even know where to begin. Because it, I don't think I should get into this because it's a huge thing. Uh, but yeah, I just wanted to make the point that Corbyn was set to renationalize all of this. Britain has this reputation that its state services are dreadful. I don't think that's true, uh, broadly. But I also think there's an additional factor that needs to be borne in mind. And I talked about this with my SE Scottish Hospital Food last year, which is that the point is that it's not just the quality of the end product that matters, i.e. The, the, the hospital food itself. What also matters is the process by which that food was created and brought to you, because that relates to the whole nature of your society. And it's the same thing with train companies. Do you want British Rail, which is one big British thing? It's to, the, brings us all, unites us all, brings us all together. There's one thing, there's one service, like the National Health Service or the BBC. Do you want that? So British Rail to be like that, one big thing. Or do you want these little companies? Isn't that cute? These little private companies around the country that look after the railway in that area. That's nice. But what about when it's not little private companies, but it's fucking big conglomerates that are owned in turn by large global conglomerates? Because that's what that's the situation now. So it's not cute little companies. <laughs> it's, that doesn't happen anymore. Everything gets bought up and streamlined and globalized. So you don't really have small companies anymore doing things. It's certainly not at that level, at that scale. Uh, so you're, so what can you do? Um, what you would want, what I would want is an entire change of society. Like the, the whole way that we do things. Uh, I think that a Scottish hospital, or I think, I think that a hospital should have a kitchen. I don't think that it should be transporting food from 400 fucking miles away in a refrigerated truck. I don't think that's nice. I don't even care if the resulting food at the end is delicious, which it isn't. But even if it were, I would still be thinking, is this right? Does that, how, how does this affect people? How does it affect our notion of our society and our notion of our local area?
And how does it affect the local area economically and spiritually if they're not even making their own bloody food? It's coming from the other end of the country. Uh, all of this should matter. But in a hyper-monetarist sort of system like we have now, it doesn't matter because there's no way to quantify any of this. So, <laughs> so it does. It's just overlooked. So they'll go for whatever it is maximally economically efficient, uh, even if that does indeed mean uh, the the food is made in a meal. What was it called? A meal production. There was a term like a, a meal production plant. <laughs> Can you? I mean, it, it even sounds awful. Uh, made in there, put into a truck. And driven 400 miles, 500 miles across the country to a completely different place, completely different place, all different people, different landscape, everything. Uh, but if that's the most efficient way to do it, then it'll be done, regardless of how that sort of messes with people spiritually. And I think it does mess with people spiritually. But again, we don't have any way to talk about that without sounding like a complete hippie. Without sounding like your heads in the clouds, I just I just imagine how a normie would react to hearing what I'm saying. It's in the same way that they react when you say that we should have nice buildings around us, not glass and steel shit. They don't understand. They don't understand the importance. They think that your head's in the clouds. And so we need a complete, you know, if I were to say what I think we need, it's a radical change of society, a radical change in almost everything about our society and how we live. And, uh, yeah, huge topic again. So sorry I've uh, veered into that. Um, yeah, so that that's that Super Chat uh, answered. Um, oh, there have been, let, let's see. Uh <laughs> Is there any entertainment product that you used to enjoy before being red-pilled that you can't enjoy anymore? That's a good question. Um, you know, with bands, it doesn't bother me. Um, a lot of people cannot stand it. If they had a favourite band or they liked that singer or whatever, then they find out that it's a raving leftist. So they just cannot enjoy that music anymore. Now, I understand I understand. But uh, for some reason, I'm able to get past it. I'm able to get over it. Because partly it's because I know that if I didn't do that, then I would have no no music anymore. I mean, because, you know, everyone, every band that I like, yeah, they're probably leftists. Uh, liberals, at any rate. Even if the older ones, sometimes it does uh, occur to them that, the world is kind of fucking mental nowadays, uh, whether it's mass immigration or trans stuff or whatever. Uh, yeah, some of the older ones will have reservations, but they'll never say anything out loud. Um, so they're sort of effectively lefties, in the, effectively progressives, effectively nihilists. Well, the thing is that I need music in my life. And they've made good music. They've done. They've made good songs. So, so I get. I just get over it. Um, it doesn't bother me. I just separate the two. I separate the two. Uh, 
And I also remind myself that, okay, this singer is a lefty, but there's more to a person than their politics. Because there is. And then, the, of course, the other thing is I tell myself, <laughs> yeah, uh, this person's a lefty, but 100 years ago, they would have agreed with everything that I believe in. They'd have had every political belief that I have and probably stuff that would make my eyes water. So it's really just a matter that they're a victim of the time they live in. But their talent remains. And sometimes it, their talent might be distorted by their their politics, but not usually. Um, I think that it, it depends, obviously. But I think usually a good singer, a good songwriter... Their their lyrics aren't going to be just you know Marxist droning, so yeah, that doesn't really bother me. So there are, I can't really think of any bands or whatever that I just cannot enjoy. Um, I guess it's more in the realm of storytelling because their ideas do become more salient. Uh, Doctor Who. Because I know that some people think that I really love Doctor Who and that I'm obsessed with it. I'm not. And I think that I would dislike the new series, by which I mean the 2005. (laughs) It's not so new anymore. I think I would dislike it anyway, even without the, the woke politics. Just because of what it's like. It's too big. It's too big budget. It's too flashy. I don't like it. It's not my kind of thing. So I, even without all the, you know, the tranny, gay, all you know, the race mixing, that's that makes it even worse. But even without that, I, it's I still wouldn't be watching it. You know, it wouldn't be my kind of thing. Um, but nonetheless, all of that stuff does make it worse. And I've got to say that basically, I have the attitude that. This does ruin it for me. It does ruin a film for me. Uh, what was that? There was a Batman film that came out a couple of years ago that I didn't see, but I heard that it was actually a good film, except for one single line of dialogue where she, I think it's Catwoman, refers to rich white men. And so that brings it into our era. It's unmistakably our era because in that scene, she said that line. She used that phrase. So you know the film is touched with this. It's infected with this. It's it's in league with this mentality. So, yes, yeah, fucking depressing. But everything is in league with that mentality now. Otherwise, it wouldn't get made. Those people wouldn't be employed. They wouldn't be allowed to do anything if they weren't subscribed to this. That's how it is. Oh, Archie, I think you're referring to the character Leela. Leela was a companion of the fourth Doctor, and she was very sexy. I think she was basically a treat for the dads watching. Uh, yeah, very sexy, yeah. Um, <laughs> you've distracted me now. <laughs> Um, yeah so are there any things that I can yeah I'm trying to think Uh, see I dislike so much modern media anyway for these other reasons that it's too it's too big and glossy 
for my liking. I, I, I find it suffocating. I find it overwhelming. It's too much. It's too bombastic. Um, there's no modesty about it. There's no intimacy about it. There's no simplicity about it. These are the things that I was. I, I grew up watching things from a different era, and that was what I. That's what I think drama should be. It shouldn't have a fucking million pound budget. It shouldn't. You just you don't need that. You can tell any story with a much smaller budget than that. And uh, you know, I don't know what the budgets are now for the likes of Doctor Who, but it must be two, three, four million. I don't know. It must be fucking huge nowadays with Disney co-producing as well. But anyway, the point is, uh, it's difficult for me to give you an example of something. But I, I think I, I can I can tell you one thing. I, I saw the film Tenet. And I like Christopher Nolan generally. Um, but holy shit. <laughs> he'd, uh, he'd cast a black actor for the main character. And this guy just could not act. I mean, maybe he's good in other films. I don't know. I've never seen him in any other films. But this, uh, it was beyond him. He was the... He, yeah, I could maybe he could do a supporting act. He could be the supporting actor. Maybe he could have handled that, but this was dreadful. He so he can't emote. He just doesn't seem bright enough for the character that he's supposedly playing. This this secret agent who can handle being in any any situation, in any social milieu. He can handle it because he's this intelligent and this adaptable. But he's black, and he's just got these dumb brown eyes in every every scene, every situation, and. It just doesn't wash. It just does not convince. Um, and then about 20 minutes into the film, Robert Pattinson arrives. And I don't think I'd actually ever seen him in a film before. But I was delighted when he arrived because finally, suddenly, there was an actor on the screen who could actually fucking act. He could emote. And you had a sense of him uh, having a personality. <laughs> uh, which had been sorely absent for the first 20 minutes of the film where it was just this black guy. Now, I want to emphasize, I'm not completely stupid about this. I'm sure there are good black actors. But holy shit, that that film was wrecked it, by that acting, that casting choice. Um, having said that, it was an overly confusing plot anyway, but still, they didn't help themselves by casting that guy. Um, so that's one thing that was spoiled. I think if it hadn't been for that actor, I think it, Tenet would have been all right. You know, I could have I could have dealt with it. Uh, overly autistic plot, but whatever. It would be kind of like Cipher from back in the day. That was a film that I really liked. I couldn't really follow the plot exactly, but it was good. And you, it, yeah, it was interesting. Uh, this it was just too much, um, but. I, I maybe you know, as I say, with with a different actor, maybe it could have worked, but that actor just ruined it. So there, that's one example of something where I think, yeah, it it did just ruin it for me, because uh, you know that there aren't hyper intelligent black guys in in the Secret Service. You know, once you're red pilled, you know that that just doesn't happen, so it's preposterous. Um, yeah. Exactly. I just can't take movies like that seriously. Yeah, exactly. I feel the same. <laughs> um, yeah, Archie, uh, the low budget 
yeah, drove my imagination. Yes, exactly, exactly. And that's what storytelling should be about. We've got this completely wrong idea nowadays that it's that it's <laughs> it's meant to all be on the screen in front of you, so that you don't need to use your imagination. And I just I just don't like that. I don't enjoy it at all. Um, nope. <laughs> uh, but anyway, that's a whole thing that's really my own pet issue that I, I don't want to bring in here because I don't think many people will even agree with me. Even if I explained it for them, I don't, I think most people are, it's, uh, it's too esoteric. Um, so I'm trying to think of examples of things that I just can't enjoy now that I'm red pilled. Maybe there are, but um, I can't think of them now. Maybe things from the nineties, because you look back and you realize, okay, that was just uh, that was just nihilism, really. It seemed cool at the time, <laughs> um, but you know, like TV shows, um, yeah. But I can't think of any specific examples off the top of my head. Uh, so yeah, sorry, I I should be able to give you a better answer than this, but uh, that's all I can do off the cuff. Uh, yeah, uh, uh, grief. Uh, thank you for that donation. Uh, <laughs> Black Pigeon Pilled asks, "What is your favourite European myth?" Oh well, you know, I really enjoyed learning about Norse myths at, at primary school. We did that. Um, unfortunately, I can't remember any of them now. I just remember one of them that was about a huge uh, sort of worm, like a like a dragon. Um, I can't even remember what it was called now, but I really liked that. I liked uh, this kind of stuff where it's, it's dark and scary. I, I enjoyed that all that stuff. Um, so we did we did a project about Norse myths uh, a long time ago now, and uh, it might well have been Fafnir. It, it, I do have a feeling that it began with F. Hold on a second. I think you're right. I think you might be right. I'm not sure. Huh. Might have been. Might have been. Um, are, there, are there any other similar creatures? Because I'm not sure. If, I don't, Fafnir doesn't seem, seem familiar to me. But, uh, I'm sure it was like a, a dragon that went under the earth, tunneled down into, you know. But anyway, so that's a, a long time ago. But favorite myths? Uh, no, I. And did you ask? Yeah, yeah, European. I don't know. Uh, I'm just. I'm really sort of just getting into this kind of thing now. Uh, actually, because of millennial, I think that it should have more references to these kinds of things in future. So this is something that I'd like to learn more about. So maybe in the future, I'll be able to give you a better answer to that. Oh, the owl service. I love the owl service. Um, I love Alan Garner in general. I think that... Uh, it's going to be such a sad loss when he dies. And I say that because it's 
he is old. It's going to happen soon. Um, I think he's, yeah, he's 89. And uh, yeah, I, I love his work. Minotaur, elves. <laughs> I'm honestly, I, I like things like the Loch Ness monster more than that. Uh, I, I, not, that's not really a myth, is it? I don't think that qualifies. Um, oh, Red Shift. I haven't seen Red Shift. Uh, let me think. I, I always get this confused with Pendus Fane. I think Red Shift was wasn't Alan Clark who directed it. That was Pendus Finn. So Redshift, yeah, I've got to see that. I've got to see, I haven't seen Redshift. Um, by Alan Garner, I've seen The Owl Service from the late 60s. A one-off thing that he did in 83 called The Keeper, which was very good. And there was also a mid-90s thing that I actually saw at the time, but I didn't know the significance of it. It was an adaptation of Elidor, but that's never been released on, on DVD or whatever. Um, but yes, Alan Garner is such a treasure. He's such a, a, such a talent, and I love learning about how he works. I think he's a proper artist. A literary artist, if you like. Yeah, sounds a bit pretentious, but he's a, he's like an artist who works. His medium happens to be words, but he's he has this relationship with his work that I find very interesting and admirable. Um, oh, did you see the comment at the end of Yule? Your mic issues were due to your Christmas lights. Whenever they flickered, it caused the audio trouble. I did see that comment. Um, and I didn't want to depress the person who made it by telling them that, in fact, my lights were not flickering. The lights, I forgot to make them flicker this year. <laughs> it was uh, because of uh, things were a bit rushed in, in the lead up to the first night. So I, I forgot to change the setting on the lights. So, that, so as a result, they were just on constantly all the time, just steady. So they weren't flickering. But in the videos, it looks like they are uh, at the same time as that sound appears. And I noted the person was correct that it happened, it, it coincides. But I think, weirdly enough, I think what was going on was that some sort of power surge was affecting, like an intermittent power surge was affecting both the microphone and the camera at the same time. Weird. I cannot explain that. But I'm just telling you that the lights were not flickering. Uh, but in the videos, I know it. I know exactly what you're talking about. It looks like they are. Weird, isn't it? It's almost like there's some sort of poltergeist or, you know, paranormal activity going on there. Anyway, there we go. Uh, Watership Down, I have seen the, not the, well, I don't know if it was the original version. I don't think it was. I think it was just the regular version. So, uh, is it only Colin on air or are there others? It's just me, I'm afraid, Denise. But hello, Denise, it's nice to see you again. Um, let's see. <laughs> All right, Denise, thank you for that super chat. 
All right. Midgard. Someone has suggested it was Midgard. Let me just see this. Could have been... No, 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 not the one that goes around the earth. Um, ah, bugger, this is going to annoy me now. Uh, I will look into it and hopefully find out what it was. It's one of the reasons I wish that I'd kept my old school books, because it would be interesting to look through them now. But unfortunately, they are lost to time. Um, all right. Okay, let's see. <laughs> okay. Oh, was it Jormagundr? Uh, the world serpent kills and is killed by Thor at Ragnarok. I don't think so. I don't think it was the big one. I See, I, I've got a f feeling it was like the, the name was something like F Frigia or Friedrin. Uh, but this is, you're asking me to delve back literally 30 years <laughs> in my memory so uh, it's rather difficult <sighs> and I also might get it the memory will be contaminated with uh, Bram Stoker's The Lair of the White Worm a film that I was unlucky enough to see um, as far as I know it's the only other of Bram Stoker's novels that have been filmed and unfortunately, it was filmed by Ken Russell with a young Hugh Grant and a young Peter Capaldi. Um, I, it's a very, very strange... Well, it's Ken Russell. That's what you would expect, really. But I, I have seen that. <laughs> Good God. Um, do you write poems? No. Uh, I went through a phase of doing that, but uh, I got, I, 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 well, I just realized that I wasn't good at it, so I stopped. Uh, I guess that was when I was 15, 16, and I realized I'm actually just not good at this. I should just stop it, so I stopped. Um, I don't have the mind for that. It's a, it's a different mentality, uh, I think. Okay, Roger. During desegregation in the U.S. 1960s, American whites had a vast majority and were armed, just as they are today. But still the National Guard stuck bayonets in their, the backs of its citizens and nothing was done. Well, yeah, exactly. This occurred to me the other day. I think maybe someone actually explicitly said it on Twitter. But either way, I remember looking a couple of days ago, looking at this photo. It's a famous photo. Everyone's seen it. And th and you know, the connection with well they had guns, so <laughs> why why were they just forced to do they they didn't use their guns to defend themselves because they knew that they were up against the sheer power of the state which even then and you know that's sixty years ago and even then the American state was a massively powerful thing. Uh, so powerful that the the citizens didn't even bother resisting. But things have changed. I mean, it's not like it's the same. Yeah, it's not every, everything's changed. So maybe the citizens today would be more aware of the stakes. And I, I don't know. But again, I don't want to advocate anything because I'm in Britain, and uh, 
yeah. Let's just hope it doesn't come to anything extreme. Um, yeah, all right. So there were a few other things that I was going to bring up. I made a list of things that I could talk about. These are all things that have happened since uh, since Millennial ended. The the Jewish tunnels <laughs> that happened just a what was that about on the tenth something like like that. Um, that was a very strange story. I don't know. I don't know what the truth is there. They had said various claims were made about it, that it was some youth, some teenagers who were perhaps too, what's the word, precocious, too dedicated. And they were doing it and they paid Mexican workers to, to, to do the digging for them. And so it's got nothing to do with all the pedophile stuff. I've no idea. You know, honestly, I I've no idea what was going. Maybe they were just trying to expand the synagogue. Uh, I've I'm not. I can't comment on it. Um, because obviously a lot of people thought immediately. Well, this is suspicious. And you know the the dirty mattress when it and it the the blood or well whatever the stain on it did look like on the the position where a, a small like a baby would be. Um, and then there was the baby chair uh, downstairs. I mean, it, yeah, it looked, it, it did, the, the, it looked rather suspicious to, for sure. Um, but I, I don't know. Just thought I should mention that since it has happened since, uh, well, this, the start of this year. Um, Johannes says, got to go. Uh, editing my own novel. Well, good luck with that. But thanks very much for Millennial, old chap. Have some probably worthless Odyssey money. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> um, all right. And then the next thing that was going to bring up was the WEF Davos conference with that, uh, what's his, I always forget his name, Z- Z- Xavier Millier. Uh, he's, he's there this year. George Soros's son, I think his name is Alex, has been there this year doing this dreadful, there's this awful clip of him going around, which I commented on on Twitter, uh, where he, he just seems to be inarticulate and not very bright. I mean, the, the he takes age, he takes like two minutes to say very little. And in the end, it's a bizarre, it's a, sorry, not bizarre, banal comment that he's making that, we we the elites need to re-energize democracy so that the public trust us and are on our side instead of getting lost in conspiracy theories about us. You, know, you could have said that in 10 seconds like I just did, but instead he takes two minutes and he's stopping and starting, umming and ahhing. God knows how many you knows. It's, it's, it's awful. Um, and, you know, he's not Let's see how old he is, actually. I got the feeling he was in his 30s. Let's see, Alex Soros. Yeah, he's 38. So it's not like he's 18 and he's just starting on this stuff. By now, he should know. He should be halfway articulate. But that was a fucking chore. That was an ordeal to listen to him for just two minutes. Uh, And, of course, someone said, the the people around him, 
if he were not uh, George Soros's son, then the other people around him would just have interrupted. They'd just have cut through his drivel. But because of because of whose fa- his father is, uh, they can't do that. But the point that I made was, well, <laughs> okay, so they can't interrupt him. Sure, uh, he's powerful, and when his father dies, he's gonna he's gonna be even more powerful. So, what does that mean? You know, once once his father dies, and again, that won't be far off. Um, that guy is going to be in charge of the Soros Empire. And he is not bright. So I guess he should pray that he can find advisors who are very bright because he's going to fucking need them. And it it did make me wonder, is this about new money? Because George Soros, as far as I know, and I've got nothing against people making money uh, and becoming rich and establishing dynasties and all that. I've got nothing against. I'm not, not decrying that at all. I'm just saying maybe the Rothschilds know how to maintain a bloodline better than Soros does because they've been doing it for centuries. You know, maybe their kids will be intelligent, whereas George Soros didn't know. Uh, for example, that maybe you should have kids when you're younger because your sperm is in, different, is in better shape then. And, uh, I mean, I don't know how much that, how true that is, by the way. I've, I'm not saying anything there. I'm just saying if it's true, maybe it's relevant. Um, either way, I can imagine that George Soros didn't know I've got to find the most intelligent woman because the egg matters as much as the sperm. <laughs> I need my kids to be very intelligent. Um, it's Maybe he tried. Maybe it just didn't work out. Maybe the genetic lottery didn't favour him. I, either way, he's lumbered with this heir who's a fucking dumpling, apparently. He seems it. So that's going to have interesting implications. Uh, interesting in the Chinese sense that we're going to be living in interesting times uh, when he gets hold of all that money and all that power. Ah. <sighs> <laughs> he has minus charisma. Well, and and also he's such a stereotype of the you know, the awkward Jewish guy with the glasses and the curly hair and the hyper sort of uh, and then yeah, just the, the whole thing. He, he's he's like an anti-Semitic stereotype of the annoying Jew. Uh, rather unfortunate. But I doubt it will hold him back in any way. Uh, well, I mean, what will hold him back is that, as I say, he's not, he's clearly not much of a, he's not very bright. Um, and I don't like saying that because it's a horrible thing. It's like saying to about a woman that, well, she's just not very beautiful. She's just ugly. Because it's like there's nothing that can be done about it. You know, I would feel bad if we weren't talking about evil people here. <laughs> Obviously, we should be glad that Alex Soros isn't very bright. That is good. But the broader point is, what if the elites are all like this? You know, 
probably the opposite extreme that, that you would expect is Ursula von der Leyen. She actually does come from old aristocracy in uh, Germany. And uh, I think she's got some astonishing number of kids. Like, In fact, let me find out so that I'm not saying something inaccurate. I think she's... Hold on. Yeah, she's got seven kids. So in that sense... She's actually, you know, not. She's obviously not traditional, but she's she's doing her part in in having lots of kids. So that's nice. Um, but here's the thing: you listen to her speaking, and you realize this is this woman does have a lot of power now you can say she's not the ultimate power she's she's a lackey uh whatever but either way let's not fuck around here she obviously does have power of course she does all of these people do even if they are just lackeys of a higher power they are still very very powerful and uh and they just first of all they don't seem terribly bright now ursula does seem intelligent but what worries me more with her is there seems to be a lack of wisdom, a lack of... She, she doesn't seem worldly. She seems cultured, but not wise. Um, and, and they're all like this. And she's actually the best of them. I use her as the example because she's the best of them. The rest of them are worse than her. They're less intelligent than her. They're less cultured than her. They're less educated than her. They're less charismatic than her. So my point is, I think that it's obviously a complicated picture because you can't say, well, everything that happens is just the result of incompetence because I don't believe that. I think there are there are clearly things that must have been decided upon. There are things that were were pushed through. There are, and and so they're constructed. It's not emergent. It's deliberate. And I think it's not just incompetence. It's also malice. There are things happening that I think, for the sake of, I think, they're driven by an anti-white urge, the malice. So these are different factors that I think we've got to bear in mind in trying to understand what's going on. But, but my point is that one of the factors is that our elites are just not what they used to be. For whatever reason, whether it's in Britain or Germany or France, if Europe is to survive, and by that I obviously mean the European peoples are to survive, we need a new elite. Uh, because these people, it's moribund. It's gone rotten. It's, uh, <laughs> yeah, they're not up to it. Ah, someone's just given a good summary. She is the daughter of the former head of state of Lower Saxony. Both her father's and her husband's family are very wealthy and of good stock. Shame she is like she is. Exactly. That's I'd read about her a few months ago, and um, I noted that she was, yeah, as you say, she's of good stock, very like the best. Uh, apparently, supposedly, this is the best stock, and yet, 
what you get out of that is this woman. Now, maybe in a different cultural setting, she would be fine. But in, in the cultural setting that she's got to operate in, this woman of good stock has become a traitor to her people, her culture, her nations, her civilization, her race. Um, but either way, you'd hope that she'd be wise enough to realize that. But maybe she is wise enough to realize that and has just decided, well, there's nothing I can do about it. I've just got to go along with this. So then, okay, then in that case, what we need is an elite who have balls. An elite who are willing to to risk everything in order to wrest control of the ship's wheel from those powers that are intent on destroying the white race, on destroying European civilization. We need an elite who are who are brave, who are courageous. But it, that's definitely not going to be Ursula von der Leyen. <laughs> or any of these people who are at Davos. And that's something that came across, That and someone else pointed this out, that they're panicking. All of these different uh, speeches and seminars that have come out from Davos this year, they all exude... Uh, there, there seems to be an air of panic. They know that they're hated. They know that they're not trusted. They know that the public are generally restless. Uh, even the normies, the, the docile ones, even they are not happy. They're not content. I mean, yeah, they're content, but they're that's the, <laughs> they're content, but they're not happy. They don't feel reassured. They don't feel good about the future. And neither neither should they. I mean, you can. Anyone can look at any street in any city in any country and see that things are not in a good way. So it's not surprising that the public are, are unhappy with things. Um, and I, I mean, you've got the whole uh, after effects of, of the COVID era as well, where we saw that the elites treat us with contempt, look look upon us with utter contempt. And I think they've very rapidly felt the results of that, which are that now the public have contempt for them. And now they're panicking. It's been a very quick reaction and counter-reaction there. So their, and, and their <laughs> plan to deal with this is uh, censorship is more censorship. Um, their plan is to basically pre and, uh, prevent the public from communicating ideas that are hazardous to them, the elites. And so they're calling it misinformation. Just as in late 2016, in the aftermath of the Trump election, the media started talking about fake news. Why? So that was their answer. Why did the public not do as we want? Well, it's because of this thing called fake news that's getting in the way. It's interfering with our relationship with the public. So we can't communicate with the public anymore because of this thing, this menace of fake news. And now exactly the same thing is happening here. Why do the public hate us, the elite? Well, it's because of this thing called misinformation, which gets between, it interferes with our relationship with the general public and makes them hate us. 
<laughs> I mean, the truth is, the public hate you because you treat them like shit. You treat them with contempt. You sabotage their countries. You steal their futures. You steal their children's futures. It's got nothing to do with fucking misinformation. It's got everything to do with just taking a look outside and seeing the way that Western society is going in every society. It's very tangible. It's got nothing to do with what this or that uh, influencer is, is telling me. It's fucking obvious. But of course, they've got it in their heads that well, no, it's it's, it's these in it's the misinformation network. It's the it's the fake news ecosystem and because that's, I guess, easier for them to believe. But it's a delusion. So they're so they're not they're not dealing with reality. They're not contending with actual reality. They're instead reaching for another a sort of comforter. But. It also is true that what well what they call misinformation is people like us, it's people like, like this podcast right now, this broadcast right now. And it is true that by communicating, we probably do foment a certain amount of solidarity against the likes of Ursula von der Leyen. So in that sense, you can understand why they want all of this shut down, all of this, uh, so that each one of us is now, is again isolated, again on our own, again feeling like we're the only one in the world who feels like this. Um, because then there is no solidarity, no capacity for organizing of, of any kind, and, and no encouragement, no reassurance. We're all just isolated again. <laughs> they would like that, um, which is, is kind of it's shit. It's really shit when you think about that, that they want to ruin our, our societies. But then when we complain about it, they want to take away our ability to complain about it. So then when we uh, look for solidarity in each other, they then want to deny us the ability to do that as well. I mean, again, we need a new elite. These people are are not just unfit for purpose; they're 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 vermin. They're evil, <laughs> and I wish it weren't so, because I I do approve of hierarchy. I I think hierarchy is necessary in human affairs, but by God, the people who are at the top of the hierarchy today are, well, just awful. Mostly because they have no sense of respons like genuine responsibility for those beneath them in the hierarchy. But then again, another reason is that I don't think I think a lot of them aren't fit to be at the top of the hierarchy because they're Alex Soros stammering his way through a two-minute monologue that should have taken ten fucking seconds. They're dumplings. All right. There have been a couple of super chats. Um, oh, Gallic Glory. What do you think of our guys joining the military was a career as a career in order to gain skills and resources for the coming age of hardship, despite it being softened and diversified? Um, I think if you join the military, it should be for the skills. I think that's a really, I actually think that's a very good idea, um, a good reason to join the military. 
But then I say that as someone who hasn't joined the military. So maybe I'm speaking out of turn. Maybe that's not true. Maybe maybe it's not worth it, given the way that the military is nowadays. I don't know. But I definitely think that you know, now and then it, it does hit me that, fuck's sake, I would, I would probably be in a better position if I had learned some self-discipline at 16, 17, 18. Um, national service, maybe it would be a good idea. I don't know. I do think that boys in general need discipline. Uh, they need to be taught self-discipline. Um, discipline and self-discipline are obviously two different things. Self-discipline is the main thing here. I think that a man without self-discipline is ugh, he's at a severe disadvantage um, in life. So I think in that sense, yeah, it would be useful for everyone to, to spend some time in a military type of environment. But of course, a lot of them would fucking hate it, including me. I would have really hated it. But uh, anyway, with the benefit of hindsight, I do think it would have done me some good. But um, anyway, leaving that aside, I think in, in general, joining the military to gain skills and uh, as an adult or to do it off your own volition, yeah. Uh, I think if you're off that nature, that men- that kind of mentality of uh, being more outdoorsy, extrovert, being practical, then yes, I think it would be a good idea to join the military to gain skills in that area, to learn about how to build a dwelling that with minimal resources that can with yeah that can hold a uh, roof over your head for for a night, to learn how to make a meal with minimal resources, all of this kind of stuff, um, I think is is useful is useful and uh, useful experience to have had, as distinct from useful information to have because anyone can get the information for how to to do this what military experience would give you uniquely is the actual experience of doing these things which i think is a different thing altogether you know as i say anyone can google this kind of thing to actually do it i think would be uh yeah, I think it would be advantageous to have that experience. So yeah, I, just in general, I think the answer is yes. I think it's probably a good idea. The only drawback would be, could you put up with it given the way that the military is nowadays? That's that's the only negative here. So other than that, the answer would be yes. Um, insightful world. Hello. Uh, I remember you from Millennial. <laughs> uh what did you make of the speech by Admirable... <laughs> fuck's sake. Sorry, everyone. The speech by Admiral Rob Bauer that a hot war with Russia is inevitable in the next 20 years and that civilians should brace themselves for the prospect of being called up for military service. Is this scaremongering? And if so, why? Um, I think it's maybe scaremongering in the sense of building up Russia building up the idea of Russia in people's heads as as a warmongering nation, a warmongering power, an adversary. So in that sense, I think it's it could be scaremongering. But in another sense, it might be perfectly realistic because maybe he knows that, uh, well, the Western elites are looking to engineer war with Russia. So the public should get ready for the possibility of being called up for war, for military service. In that sense, he's just doing the sensible thing, which is telling the public to uh, prepare yourself for this. 
uh, you know, maybe not you, but maybe your kid, maybe your son will get called up 20 years from now. Uh, so, you know, I, I haven't seen the speech, but the general tone, the, the, the thrust that you're reporting here, um, yeah, it's, it's, I think it's true. I think that, as I said earlier, I think that, you know, peace is not going to last forever. It never does. It's certainly not going to this time either. So there is going to be war in the future. And it looks like Russia, the West, Iran, Israel, China. Yeah, these different powers are going to vie for predominance on the world stage. People talk about multipolar, but and yeah, sure, maybe it will be more, you know, the result of all this might be more multipolar than Pax Americana was. But I don't think it will be like a free-for-all of independent powers. I think there will still be a, a very small number of, if not one, clear uh, predominant power. One world policeman, if you like. One hegemon, that's the word I'm looking for. And so it's a question of identifying who is going to be the hegemon for the next 100 or 200 years. And I don't think it's going to be America. And it's definitely not going to be Europe, unfortunately. Uh, and I, I see, I, I mean, I really wish it were not so. But part of the reason for that why I don't think it's going to be Europe in the, in the next few hundred years, is precisely that we have become flabby and dependent on America. Uh, and America has fostered that. America has, has made that happen as much as our own elites have allowed it to happen. Uh, but either way, it doesn't really matter who's to blame at this point. It has happened. We are weak and as re partly as a result of that, our populations are despondent. Everything needs reinvigorated. And I, and in the meantime, I think, yeah, we're probably going to just have to allow other people, other powers to be uh, predominant in the world. And I don't like it. But I'm what I'm saying is that for, you know, you're not going to motivate the, whatever, the French, the Swedes, the, the Belgians. They're not going to there, a, a world empire is not going to emerge from these countries anytime soon. They don't even know who they are. That's how fucking bad it is. But that has happened in the course of a hundred years. So it's not like it it it, it, it needn't take 2,000 years or 5,000 years for it to reverse, for, for us to find ourselves again. It might only take a hundred years. Um, but yeah, right now it's it's not going to be us on top. I don't like it, but I think it's the truth. Um, so yeah, there we go. Sorry, it's very depressing. I, I really I don't like saying this stuff, but uh, you know, you you asked the question. All right, uh, let's see what else. Was there anything else? Oh yes, I should I should have said this at the start. Uh, Cult Games have got a new game out. If you're into video gaming, and I will put it in the live chat. And they're asking people to add. If you're on Steam, 
if you could add them their new game to your wish list on there, that will help them with regards to Steam. So I will, uh, this is their Steam page. There we go. And you can learn about cult games and their game, which is called The Great Rebellion. They had another game, which is called Heimat Defender. They're a very cool, small company. Uh, you know, they're, it's the kind of thing that we should be supporting. Even if you're not into video games, uh, you know, help to spread the word about this company and, and these games because it's, it's our guys. It's people who are broadly on our side and uh, God knows that the mainstream isn't. So please consider that. Uh, all right. Yeah, I think that's pretty much everything that I was going to say. We actually have gone for an hour and 45 minutes already. I hope it hasn't been too meandering. Uh, let's see. Yeah, ethno-nationalists are anti-war and isolationists. Uh, the elite don't like that. Sure, but also the normies are anti-war. The whole public are anti and No one... And this is as much a, a sign of... a sort of civilizational listlessness as anything else. Um, we don't know who we are anymore, so we don't know what we stand for, so we don't know why we should be aggressive in standing for that. You see what I mean? Like, If you're to ask the average normie, should we go to war to defend British values <laughs> or to impose British values on some desert people? Well, first of all, they don't, they, they don't know why we should impose our values on another people. And secondly, they don't even know what our values are. Because no one knows what our value... No one knows... We don't even know who we are. And I'm obviously not talking about you and me, but the British, the Swedish, the French, the Germans. So that's how bad it is. And and But that that's also why they're anti-war. It's because they don't believe in anything enough to defend it or fight for it or die for it or kill for it. All they've got is comfort, and it's all they know. But they won't die or, or kill or die to defend their comfort. They'll just whine. And again, it's another sign of everything needs reinvigorated. Everything needs a new start. Um, <laughs> Britain is about to have the Falklands taken away from them. Your chance to prove your mettle may be here soon. That's interesting. I heard, I did hear about this um, a wee while ago. I think that that would be that would be interesting. It, it, I, I don't know exactly what effects that would have. I don't. I mean, the thing is, in Britain, no one believes in the empire at this point. My God, it's a long time ago. I think it was a long time ago, even in 1980. Was it 81, 82? Um, oh, hold on a minute. I think it was a. Uh, yeah, it was 82. Even then, 
I think for a lot of people it seemed ridiculous to be going to war to defend uh, a piece of land, so to speak. Um, which, which, you know, if you don't believe in empire, <laughs> then obviously you're going to think, well, why are we laying claim to this foreign piece of land? We should give it to the people who had it before we showed up and stole all their resources. Um, so obviously you're going to be against the Falklands War. You're going to be against Thatcher. But the thing is, 40 years have passed since then, and everything's, you know, that's all just changed. So it's got even more that way. So now no one at this point believes, you will not have, like in those days, you still had the Tories who believed in, if not the empire, then at least the dignity of Britain as a world power. Who the fuck believes in that now? Enough to go to war for it. Very few people, I would say. Again, what people want is just to be left alone. They want a pe- they want peace. That's what most people want. Um, big oil reserves down that way. Well, in that case, maybe the powers that be could engineer something to make the public care about it. But I think that would actually be a struggle. Uh, after being burnt with the Iraq war and the Afghanistan war, um, again, I think the public are sceptical of that kind of thing in a way that they weren't even 20 years ago. Well, in a, in a way that they definitely weren't 20 years ago. Uh, again, I think that foreign adventurism just is not something that the public in Britain are up for. I don't think. Or even in America. Even right-wing Americans, I think, are done with that kind of thing. They Again, they just want to repair their own country, their own society. They want the factory in their town to open up again so that their grandson has a fucking career, so that he can have a family and a house, and he doesn't have to live in a fucking cardboard box. I mean, of course, that's what people really care about. Um the abstractions of national pride and and an empire, imperial glory and so on, a crusade, these are all nice to haves, <laughs> but they're not essentials. Uh, the essentials are a future for your family, a future for your descendants. Um, that's crucial. And And if you can't have that, if you can't be assured of that, then the natural reaction is just to look is to lower your scope, to narrow your scope again, narrow your horizons again to just your immediate comfort. And again, I think a lot of people have done that. And that's where a lot of people are. Uh, and this is why you've got the, the the pod life and the bug man, just video games and porn. You know, it's, it's really shit. It's just awful. And But this is what's happened. When, when a culture is, a civilization is well neutered and then deconstructed over time this is what you end up with it's a large number of people who don't know anything they don't know what they're living for what they're what they're part of or should be part of what their society stands for why they should have kids and so on society needs to give people a an overriding Meta, a sort of superstructure to their lives 
but it also needs to give them a personal future that's worth it, that's worth the trouble. And right now our society does neither of those for people. So of course, no one wants to fight and kill and die for a society that can't even give them the spiritual basics, the most basic stuff. Um, all right. Can This is Gallic Glory. Can a new religion for our people arise to combat the age of materialism? Or should we artificially prop up and return to the outdated belief systems of Christianity slash paganism? Um, I don't. I don't know. Is the simple answer uh, a new religion? Uh, I mean, the threat is Islam. If it's not a Christianity and it's not paganism and it's not some new religion of our own, then it's going to be Islam because we will have nothing with which to answer Islam. Uh, unless Islam itself gets cucked by Western progressivism, the, the, the nihilism. But I don't think that's going to happen. Yeah, Padfa says, the war on terror has burnt people out and it was mostly fought by millennials. People are tired. Yes, I think that's a very good summary. Ah, climate change. That's what the elite want us to unite under. Vaccinations too, get your booster. Yes, I agree. And this is what emerged during COVID. That um, they want to... This is this is what the the great narrative... Klaus Schwab once he gave one speech where he talked about this. He used that phrase, the great narrative. <laughs> I mean, it's like they're trying to put together a piece of software and here's the latest update. <laughs> so now we've got the great narrative component to go along with the great reset component. And ugh. anyway, I think that is how they look at this kind of thing. So anyway. He said this, and and what is the great narrative? I think it it is ultimately this kind of thing that you can you can play your part in a crusade of public health and climate safety, climate welfare, whatever. So, in other words, you can do your bit to look after the environment and to look after your your neighbours, your and uh, and your your own well being. But it's all health. It's all about biology. And yeah, there's a whole load of stuff there that you could see. But ultimately, I just, the, the short version of what I would say is I just don't think it's enough. Yes, we are global citizens. Exactly. Uh, I just don't think it's enough for people. Uh, climate, and I also just don't think that most people believe in climate change. I mean, they say they do. They, they maybe even think that they do but they don't really believe in it. Because if you did really believe in it, you would be up the wall with worry. But most people aren't. Hardly anyone is. So that means that deep down, most people think it's a load of bollocks. Because it is. It just is. Um, and it always has been. I've always thought it was, and I'm staying. I'm, I'm sticking by that. <laughs> I don't have any res, uh, 
uncertainty here. I think that the climate change thing is a load of bollocks. Even if the climate is changing, and even though we are polluting the environment, and I think it's awful, and I think we should stop doing that, but regardless of that, the anthropogenic global warming stuff, that specific narrative about carbon and so on, is a load of bollocks. And I think their hope they've created it because, and I, again, I wrote a Substack essay about this early on last year. I think they've been looking for the perfect tool with which to control the public, and they thought that climate change would be it. COVID was a sort of prototype dress rehearsal for it kind of thing, but the ultimate thing is climate because the climate, the COVID thing, the virus, ultimately it. it it wears, what's the term, it, it, it lives itself out, it, it burns out. Um, but the climate never stops changing. And you can, there is no end to how much data you can generate about the climate to uh, prove your case, to prove that there's a need for ever more work, ever more sacrifice. So in theory, it should be a really good tool to use for the, to control the public because you can just endlessly motivate them by telling them how bad it all is. <laughs> and they can't argue with you because they don't understand the science. They can't make head nor tail of the science, so they've got no choice but to believe you. But actually, they do have a choice, which is that they can just stop listening to you because after all, the ice caps haven't melted away. So even though they don't understand the stuff you're saying, they can see that it's not true. And I think that's broadly what's happened or what's happening. And certainly what's going to happen is that the public are going to realise that the doomsday predictions that they've heard for years and bloody years, none of them have come to pass. None of them. But then really the main reason that I think the public will reject the climate change stuff is that it's it would be too inconvenient for them to believe it. The inconvenient truth, indeed. It would be so inconvenient that they just cannot be bothered. They don't want it. Um, they're not prepared to sacrifice that much. They're not. Maybe some do-gooder, you know, middle-class 20-year-old woman Maybe she's really up for it. <laughs> but even her enthusiasm will wane once she realizes that it means she can't have that nice handbag. It means she can't have that nice meal or whatever. Yeah. Then she'll suddenly realize how, how, how wafer thin her commitment to all of this actually was. Underneath all the, the virtue signaling and the fervor, actually, <sighs> she doesn't really believe it either any more than her racist uncle believes it. That's the truth. No one really believes it. And that's why, even though in theory it would have been the perfect way, the perfect tool, the perfect narrative to unify and motivate the public, it actually isn't. Because people can see it's not true, and also people just don't want it to be true because dealing with it would be too much of a fucking bummer. It would be too annoying. So they just don't want to. So uh, I don't, uh, yeah, basically. And, and the other thing is, it's just too abstract. It's not like COVID where, well, granny's going to die. You know, that's very tangible. With climate change, so the, the, the polar ice caps are going to melt. The, 
the sea levels are going to rise. What is it? The, the carbon, something about carbon. No one really knows. No one cares. Again, they cannot get their head around it. It's all too abstract. And then that's without even bringing into uh, the stuff about weather systems, climate systems, after effects, tertiary effects, etc. Which by that, by the time you're talking about those kind of things, every normal person has just phased out of the conversation. Um, so no one cares. Yeah. So that that's the summary. I just don't think that climate change is going to be the panacea, the sort of silver bullet that they were hoping for. So there we go. Well, what they could do is come up with another COVID, another a similar public health emergency, because that did scare people. But the thing is, it would have to be a lot more convincing. People will not go in for it. Like, see, this is an interesting question. How soon could they do COVID two? You know, son of COVID. Um, COVID redux. <laughs> um. I I think it would have to be a, a, a good couple of years yet. Like there have to be at least five years since the original one, because uh, but probably more. Um, yeah, because again, people are burnt out with it. It's weird, isn't it? It's difficult to say what are the public up for right now, because I don't think they're up for anything except they they need to recover from multiple bad things. Uh, and just a bad society. It's a bad culture, bad de- demographics, bad economy, everything. Crappy high streets, everything. Um, ah, they're prepping for disease X. And as far as I know, there is no actual disease X. Disease X is a hypothetical it's like a placeholder. Uh, it's it, what it means is future emergency, f- future future pandemic, unspecified future pandemic. Um, but they're using it to. It's a sort of con. It's like a concept. So that's what they're building their laboratories around and so on, and it's what they're placing in the public's mind as the future threat. We don't know what it is yet, but eventually there will be a disease X. It will have a name by then, but right now we're calling it disease X and uh, we have to prepare for it and you have to be ready for it so that when it does emerge, when it does materialize and we tell you about it, you're all psyched up for it. You're ready to shit yourself with fear and terror about disease X because you've been dreading it arriving for years. Yes, but again, I think the public aren't up for it. Not not just now, anyway. It would have to be a, a, at least a couple of years away. They need some semblance of normality back for a while. I think if you were to put them all into lockdown now, like today, oh, fuck. I actually think you'd have a huge number of suicides. Um, because people just would dread going back into that now. I mean, the long-term effects of the first round of it are only really becoming apparent now. All the businesses that have gone, sure, we saw that at the time, but all the bus- all a lot of businesses are only now shutting down because they've struggled on, you know, they've stumbled on for a year or two, 
and then realize, okay, we just can't do it. This this took too much of the wind out of our sails. So we've just got to stop. Uh, and then you've got the damage to children's development, um, the, the education system. Yeah, there, there are, yeah, and that's to say nothing of cancer treatments that didn't happen, diagnoses that weren't made, and so forth. So lots of long-term effects are only now becoming apparent. So, and we're going to be dealing with that for years. So to go back into lockdown now, I, again, I, I think you would just have a huge wave of suicides. But who knows, maybe uh, that wouldn't be much of a deterrent. Because <laughs> I... The, the depopulation thing is, and I do think they want fewer of us, but at the same time, they want to brown us up. They want to black us up as much as possible. And that's why you've, you've got the endless immigration from Africa. I think they want both. They want fewer people, but the people, or, or they want loads of black people. At any rate, they want far fewer white people. And they can they can get that through the twin things of depopulation and race mixing. So it's two attacks at, at once. And the end result is going to be fewer white people. Because if you think about it, and I made this point on Millennial, everything all points to this. It's all don't the, the, the message is don't have white children. Whether the tool is homosexuality, trans, feminism. Uh, miscegenation, uh, devoting yourself to your career, uh, consumerism, being a bug man, uh, climate change even. Um, whatever the tool is, the message is don't have white kids. It's have kids if you must, but if you must, then well, at least have, at least make sure they're mixed race kids. Nothing worse than white kids. White kids are the purveyors of the inheritors of white privilege, of the systemic violence and the racism and so forth. So just for God's sake, don't create any more of them. That's the message. Have kids if you must, but make them make them mixed race. Everything that the message is always ultimately that. So um and really every as I say pretty much every societal trend or project that you could point to, you can see how it almost explicitly uh, serves that end, pushes that message. If not explicitly, then implicitly. Uh, so, yeah, they clearly want, and by they, I just mean whoever's in charge of society. <laughs> you can name whoever you want there. Um they want fewer white people in the future, far fewer of us. And uh, yeah, the, the two tools are discouraging us from having kids. And uh, so in depopulation, killing loads of us off. I do think, I don't know if that was deliberate with the vaccine. It might have just been general sloppiness of production standards with the vaccine. I don't know. But either way, the vaccine definitely, I, I do believe that it has raised the death rates. I do believe that it has done that. And again, this isn't something that I would preach about, but you've got to explain, one way or another, you've got to explain the abnormally high death rates. 
and it's all happened since the vaccine rollout. So that would seem like the obvious culprit. Uh, now, whether that was deliberate or not is another matter, uh, as I say. But I do think that they want fewer of us, and they keep saying it. I mean, they keep explicitly saying it. That you know, if you want to save the climate, don't have kids. If you want to save money, don't have kids. If you want to have a happy life, don't have kids. If you want your relationship to survive, don't have kids. I mean, it's fucking mad that they... they Basically say that you'll be happier and more fulfilled in almost every way if you don't have kids. And why are they doing that if not a depopulation agenda? But as I say, the deep, there's depopulation, but at the same time there's swamping us with Africans, swamping our countries with Africans. So, it's, yeah, it's, you might say that they don't really want depopulation at all. They just want they just want race mixing. They, they want a, a coffee-coloured future population. But even that goal is insane because a coffee-coloured population is going to have an, IQ, an average IQ of like 90, 95. So you're worsening the competence, the quality at every level and every sector of your society. I don't know. I, I don't know what kind of elite would do that. Uh, except one that either felt intrinsically foreign to the mainstream of society or one that was painfully aware of its own inadequacy, like the the people I was talking about earlier, and so wants to lower the population of the general, sorry, lower the quality of the general population uh, so that they're less of a threat to the elite. Ah, fucking hell. Grim stuff. Really grim. I'm sorry, everyone. I I didn't want to be this down, this depressing. Uh, I do apologize. <laughs> Someone's asked a very easy question. Woes, do you prefer one or two spaces to separate sentences? I prefer one. I don't think there's any need for two. I think if you need two spaces, then you should just use a better font. I think that two is is silly. I don't I don't go along with that. So there you go. Easy question. So thank you for that. Uh, thank you for that super chat. Um, all right. Oh, I should check entropy before we finish. Because uh, I think we will finish now. Because I've been going for two hours and ten minutes. Um, All right, uh, Tom Seaver. Uh, right. Ah, yes. Tom says, uh, no message, just thanks. Well, thank you very much. All right. And let's see if there are any more on Odyssey. I don't think there are. No, I don't think there are. All right. Two is so gauche. <laughs> I just think it looks like a... Uh, it looks like a typo. It looks like an... It looks unprofessional. That's what I think about the double space. But it's it's again it's one of these things that really doesn't matter. Uh, do whatever you prefer. All right. So okay, there is a super chat. Is there still a super chat, or have I answered them all now? I don't think I've missed any. No, I think I've I think I've answered them all. 
Okay. Well, I will call it a night there. A space, the final frontier, indeed. <laughs> okay. All right, well, we'll end it there. I think this has been quite fun. Uh, I'm sorry about the de very depressing subject matter, but the, uh, the the questions did go there, so I had to answer. All right. Well, I will uh, return to my post-millennial funk and keep doing my work to prepare for the year ahead. And uh, hopefully I'll have the first essays out in a in a couple of weeks at the start of February. And uh, and then Millennial will start in, uh, well, about another nine months from now, I guess. <laughs> we, can, uh, we can have a, a, a goodly while before that has to begin again. And uh, yeah, I hope that, I hope that you all have a good year. So I should say Happy New Year to everyone. In spite of what we've been talking about, it's very depressing. But in spite of that, try to have, you know, try to take care of yourself. Try to have a fulfilling year, a rewarding year. Try to get those things done that you've been wanting to get done. Be good to the people around you. Look after your loved ones. Um, all right. Yes. Okay. We'll end it there. Thank you for listening. I'll see you later. Bye-bye for that.